Well, good morning. Greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be back with you. We were last Sunday, but we were just barely back last Sunday. Thinking about the message this morning, I've been keeping a list of titles of messages on a note app on my phone. And I've been thinking about doing two things. One of them is to uh, preach through my separation and nonconformity class from Bible school. Um, I have 12 lessons on separation and nonconformity, pretty much a, a laid out um, what, what I've tried to lay out is, is a basic and a practical perspective of separation and nonconformity. Um, I've also been thinking about the book of Romans, a study through the book of Romans. And uh, when I think about doing preaching through the book of Romans, I think about two years probably of messages. So anyway, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm ready for that, but I'm not sure y'all are. <laughs> um, but anyway, so those two things were on my mind coming on from Bible school, and I was thinking about, you know, what am I going to start on? What am I going to do next for messages for our congregation? And I was looking through this list on my phone, and I realized there were four messages, four titles that kind of lended themselves to the same thing. And they were they related to the human relationship with God, not in the relationship so much of the... Maybe not so much in the relationship like the father-son aspect of relationship, but rather who God is and who we are. Um, I hope you can make a little bit, see a little bit the distinction there. So the title of the message this morning, and this will probably be the first of, of four messages, but the title of the message this morning is God and the thing I value most. So you can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be reading the first four verses. I mean, sorry, the first six verses of Exodus chapter 20. You probably, some of you recognize that Exodus chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given. So beginning at, at verse 1, And God spoke all those, these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me and showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Stop reading there. So there are three names for God in the Hebrew. There are three names for God here. The first one is in I, I the Lord. I am the Lord. That's the first name, and it is Yehovah or Jehovah God. And it means the eternal self-existent one. So... In verse 1, he says, I am the Lord. That is referring to 
Jehovah. I am the self-existent eternal one. And then the word God, which is next, is Elohim, which was the common word for God. So it would be like the word that we use for God. It could mean God in heaven, or it could mean another kind of God. You also see that same word used in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That word gods there is Elohim. So it's like their common word for a god. God or a god. And then in verse 5, you have God again. And that word is El. And it refers to like strength or the Almighty. So specifically the Almighty, but power, strength. So I wanted to kind of lay that foundation because I'm going to be making some difference between those names for God as we go through the message. In verse 2 it says, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So why does he talk here about the land of Egypt? Why does he make this, this point of which God he is? I am the God. I am the Jehovah who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, in Egypt they were slaves. And so as slaves, they did not have a life of their own. Their life was their master's life. So their time in Egypt was a time of, as long as they were in Egypt, they were not living for themselves. There was nothing that they could do for themselves. Life was for the Egyptians. Their life was for the Egyptian as long as they were in Egypt. So God had a place in the life of the Israelite. And in that phrase, he's identifying what that place was. I have given you life. I am the God who has given you your life. Because I took you out of Egypt. I took you away from the place where you were when your life was owned by someone else. And I have taken you out of that. I have freed you from that. So his place in their lives was the place of the essence of their life. It was the beginning point of their life was when they came out of Egypt. And he was the God who gave them that. And so what I worship is what I give the place of of the essence of life. So if my life revolves around the essence of life is what life revolves around. And whatever holds that place is the thing I worship. So turn now, keep your finger there and turn now to Exodus chapter 32. Here we're going to also read the first six verses. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and came and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings 
which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is our God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Stop reading there. So what was the problem here? We have the people making a golden calf and saying that this was God, Elohim, But then Aaron says in verse 5, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, Jehovah. So they were using the name that God had given them, right? But they were putting something in God's place. They said, this calf that we made is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. They were giving that image the place that God said was reserved for him in their lives. When Christ, Colossians 3 verses 4 through 6, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Is Christ your life? Is he the essence of your life? Are you giving him that place in your life. See, that's what God was saying that He is, He was to the Israelites. He says, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the God who gave you life. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, ye also, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. And then it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because if you give those things the place in your life, you're giving them the place that is supposed to be Christ's place. For which sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So now in Exodus 32, look ahead to verse 20. This is Moses after he came down the mountain. He saw what was happening. Then he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. So when he came down from the mountain, he saw what they were doing. He burnt this thing with fire, ground it up, put it in the water and said, now you have to drink it. Because the course that you have taken in life, the course that you have taken is going to have consequences. It's going to have results. And the results of this are you're going to have to drink this contaminated water. Let's go back to Exodus 20 and look at the second aspect of this passage. The first part of verse 5 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. So this... God here at the end is El or the Almighty. But what does this idea of jealous mean? 
Well, I want to I want to pull out two things from this this thing of the a jealous God. First of all, it has the idea of being only one. So, I want to be the only husband for Dana. I'm jealous for that position with her. I want to be the only one. I want to have a place of value with her that no one else has. And so this is a value place. So God is saying that I want to have a value place in your life. I'm a jealous God. And by using the name Almighty, he's saying that I want to have the place of the most value because I am the Almighty. I am the ultimate value. And so I must hold the ultimate value place. And then the second thing that it shows us is, a caring, is the idea of a caring desire or that he cares about us. Because if he didn't care about us, he wouldn't be jealous for our love. He wouldn't be jealous for our position. He wouldn't be jealous to to be where we're in a proper place. And he doesn't tell us, he doesn't give us this command because he's proud of his position. He gives us this command because he desires to see us flourish. And unless we have the proper order for our lives unless we have the proper thing at the top or person or being at the top. We won't have our lives ordered properly and we won't be able to flourish. So because God cares about us, He wants us to have our lives ordered properly. He's jealous for us to be successful in life. He's jealous for our good. So what happens when we get it wrong? The last part of that verse expresses what happens when we get it wrong. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And so when we turn away, when we turn away from God, when we turn away from that ultimate value and purpose for life, then we're turning away from something and we're establishing a different pattern. And, we, and that different pattern will carry itself as long as we continue to be separated from the proper value system and value place. So it's going to carry across time. What about getting it right? Verse 6, And shewing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so when we... When when we place our love into that system, when we engage with that system of love in in a loving relationship with God, then that puts us at a different place. It puts us at a place where we can see the world properly and where God can show us things, where God can teach us, where God can guide us. So how do we make this practical? What is the ultimate value in your life? And then along with that question is another question, and that is, are you willing, is your heart willing right now for the Holy Spirit to speak to you about 
what the ultimate values in your life are. I'll go back to the title. God and the thing I value most. I use that title because I want us to understand that God does not, is not always the thing we value most. There are sometimes things that we value more. And I would say for every one of us, there was a time when there were things that we valued more than God in our lives. But do we value Him that way now? Well, first of all, what do I bow to? When I face a decision, what's my first concern? What's the first thing that I'm concerned about when I face a decision? Something comes up, boom, what am I concerned about? Is it me? Is it myself? I'll confess to you, as I studied through this passage, I was challenged about where my love is. Is it myself? Is it my things? Is it my rights? Are those the things that are initially affronted when I face a decision or a challenge? And this is probably another form of, of vowing, but what do I give into then? So I weigh the options and, and what determines which one I go with. Is it my attitudes? Do I bow to my attitudes? Do I say, you know, I, I, I know I shouldn't feel this way. It's not really the right way for me to feel, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyway. I'm just going to let myself go down that road. Because, well, I, I deserve to. Because they're not doing what's right. And so I deserve to be able to have this feeling or this opinion or this attitude? Is it pleasure? Do I say, well, that wouldn't feel very good, so I'm going to go with what feels good. I'm going to, I'm going to make this decision because I want to. It's what would please me. It feels best. Is it laziness? Is it because, you know what, I just don't feel like doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm just sick of the struggle. I'm sick of the work. I'm sick of whatever. And I just don't want to do this. Am I just too lazy? Is that what I give in to? Is it security? Do we want to keep ourselves secure. And I say, that doesn't look very safe. That doesn't feel very like it'll, that'll make me vulnerable. And so I clamp down and say, I can't, I can't be vulnerable. I can't let go of this. Is it other people? Do I just give in because of the pressure that other people apply to me? Is that what I decide makes my decision? You could maybe think of other things. Those are the ones that I thought of. What do I give in to? And that's a form of bowing. That's a form of changing my direction because of those things. Are there things you reserve for yourself? 
And this is really about control. Are there things in your life that you say, God, you can have everything but this? I had one point in my life, I had two big things in my life that I did not want to release to God. And I didn't even realize it. It wasn't even a conscious thing. It was a subconscious thing. And it was the place that God had to bring me to really be able to use me in his kingdom. And one of them was financial success. I wanted to be financially successful. We didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I said, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live pinching my pennies. I want to be successful. And so I started on an ambitious journey to be financially successful. And I came to the place where I realized that if I was going to be a disciple of Jesus, I had to give that up. And I had to go, God, if you want to make me a pauper for the rest of my life, you can do that. You can have that. And I've had to keep my fingers pried open since too. Because we want control. The other thing was that I grew up fairly conservative. But I knew about another group of people that was much more conservative than we were. And this group of people didn't... You know, they... I, I grew up with horse and buggy with... Um, you know, not having some modern conveniences, things like that, that were different about my life than a lot of people around me. But I knew about this group that was down in Kentucky that had no running water, no indoor plumbing. They didn't use any electricity. They used no generated power. The only thing they operated with was horses. So they had, like, for instance, one one man down there had a woodworking shop and outside the shop they had like this this i don't know if you call it a stall almost um where they would they put a a draft horse on this thing and he would walk and as he would walk it would turn the belt underneath of him and that's how they generated their woodworking equipment that's how they operated their woodworking equipment so i knew about this and I said, you know, God, I'm fine with being as conservative as I am, but I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. That's more than I want to do. And I came to a place in my life where I realized that I had to say, God, I'll be whatever you want me to be. And if that's what that means, I'm okay with that. And I will do that. And I didn't know where he would take me. But we, we battle these things, and those, that's my journey. Your journey might be different, but that's my journey. But are there things in your heart that I just don't want to let go of my control of this thing? I, I want to retain control of my life in this area. God is the one who gave you life. And you owe Him that primary place. You owe Him that spot. He gave you life. God is the greatest value. There is no other thing or system or ethic that can replace Him properly. 
in your life. He must be at the top of your value system or you will fail. Not only yourself, but also those around you. Every life has an Elohim. Every life has a God. You have a God. The question is, who or what is that God? Is it the true God? Is it the Almighty? Is it the eternal self-existent one? Whatever is at the top of your value system serves the place of God to you. You see, in Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites did a lot of the same things that they did in their sacrificial system to God. They brought sacrifices. They gave money. They gave gifts. There was something else they did. There's three things. I don't see the I don't see the other thing. But anyway, they did a lot of the same things, but the object of their worship was wrong. That was the problem. Does the God who revealed himself through Jesus Christ really have the highest place in your life? And the answer to that rests in the integrity of your heart. What am I really giving that place in my life? And you are the only one that can answer that question. So one of the questions, one of the billboards for CAM is, where are you going, heaven or hell? And people call me and say, I want to know where I'm going. Tell me where I'm going. Well, I can't tell someone where they're going. Because it has to do with something in here. It's asking them a question and they want the answer to that question. And sometimes people are interested and really interested in finding out what the answer to that question is. So what can I tell them? You need to learn to know Jesus. Because He's the one, knowing Him is eternal life. He's the one that then they can put on the highest place when they learn to know who He is. So whatever is at the top of your value system serves the place of God to you. God is what, is what we use to make sense out of life. So whatever that God is, is what you're using to try to make sense out of what you see in the world. Because whatever's at the top of your value system, everything else is ordered underneath of that in some way. It's a, it's a, it creates a priority structure. And so if your priority structure doesn't begin at the right place, then you're going to always be trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? What, what does this have to do with this? You know, and it's not going to come out right. You're not going to come out the way that's right in your life. So this is talking about more than just acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So it's not just the person who acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, but it's the person who does the will of God. So, 
the, in, the youth, in the youth class this morning, the, the idea about the will of God came up. You know, and sometimes, especially when we're young and usually when we're old, we struggle with, you know, what really is the will of God? How are you going to know what the will of God is unless you know the character and person of God? You're not going to be able to. So to simply say, to simply acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but not to know who He is and to follow Him that way will bring us up short of truly acknowledging, of truly knowing Him as Lord, truly experiencing Him as God, truly giving Him that highest place. So we need to know His character in person so that we can have an intimate relationship with Him so that we can know what His will is and so that we can do it. And if we get it wrong, we'll get life wrong. So a lot of people in the past, and even Christians in the past, people who profess Christianity, and, and I say this with caution because as I look at this lesson, I think about how real this is to my life. Like, am I really doing everything that God wants me to do? Because when I am saying this, I'm saying that to call myself a Christian means that I'm engaging with living a Christ-like life completely as much as I'm able in every aspect of my life. But a, a lot of people in the past, if we look at history, we say, well, there's you know, people who have called themselves Christians who have gotten it really wrong. They've done things really, really bad things in the past. One of the things we looked at in early church history class was the Crusades. And I think we would say that they got it really wrong. But they didn't know or follow the character and person of Jesus. So when we look at the Crusades and we look at the life of Jesus, do we see some differences? Absolutely, we see some differences. But am I really living like the picture that I see in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm going to stop there. What's significant about the idea of rest? Well, if you go back to Genesis 2.2, that's the end of the creation. And God made all these things in six days, and on the seventh day, He rested. He looked at His creation, He said, it's very good, and He rested. The end of creation was rest. And Jesus is saying, that if you know me, here in this passage, in verse 27 it says, And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The end of knowing him is rest. And so when we give our lives, when we give God the place that he deserves in our lives, the place that he belongs in, the end result of that is rest. Well, you might say, well, what does that mean? 
I've been a Christian for 20 years or more or whatever, and it doesn't always feel restful. Well, that's right. But don't you have rest in your soul? Because that's what Jesus said you would have. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the end result is rest. And so we find rest for our soul. And if we follow through, we're going to find rest for our entire being. There remaineth therefore rest for the people of God. John's going to cover that when he gets that far along in Hebrews, whenever that is. It's chapter 4, isn't it? Coming up pretty close on it. And so we enter into rest and then there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. So when we get that, when we get our God in the right place and that properly orders our priorities, it properly orders our life, then we find rest. Yes, we'll still face struggle. Yes, we'll still face the reality of living in bodies that are prone to sin. We'll still face the struggle of pain and the fact that our world is broken as it is. But God promises us rest for our soul when we put Him in the proper place.